This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from St Augustine's Anglican Church in Moreland in Melbourne's Inner North. Today's Bigger Question, hasn't archaeology disproved the Bible? We're asking this question today to Gillian Asquith. Gillian lectures in New Testament and Greek at several Melbourne theological colleges. Her areas of interest include the transmission of the text of the New Testament and biblical archaeology. So please welcome Gillian Asquith. So Gillian, welcome to Bigger Questions. Now you're keen on archaeology, although isn't that a career in ruins? Oh, Rob, that's terrible. <laughs> okay, it will get better, I assume, yeah, yeah. But you do love archaeology and you've recently been on a dig. So did you find anything interesting? Yeah, we always find something interesting. I've been on a number of digs. Um, I regularly take students uh, to Israel. I, I work under a professor from the Hebrew University there. But the kinds of things that the archaeologists find interesting are perhaps not the kinds of things that um, the average layperson would, would think is interesting on a dig. Uh, so a lot of the time we're just looking for stones, stones in a row. Okay, um, sure, okay. <laughs> and did you find any stones? We found lots of stones in a row. Right, at your so, latest uh, dig. Yeah, but you found something particularly exciting, though, didn't you? That you can't actually tell I, uh, us about. I could tell you, but then I'd have to shoot you. Okay, um, sure, okay. So I prefer that not to happen. It's going to be a short interview yeah. if that happened. Yeah. Uh, there is a hierarchy of, of things that you find on a dig. So normally things just get tossed in a bucket and they're looked at later. Something particularly interesting will go in the archaeologist's pocket and, and that says this is so precious that we're not going to mix it up with the other things in the bucket. Okay. If the thing is too fragile and precious to go in the pocket, it goes in a cardboard box. So you know you've kind of hit the big time when the cardboard box comes out. Yeah. If it's even more precious, like if it's something that can be uh, sent off to the lab for carbon dating, the aluminium foil comes out. <laughs> right, okay. And then the object is wrapped carefully in the foil with no human contact whatsoever um, and then the, the really big find is it's the one almost like the holy grail perhaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the one where we're sworn to secrecy we're not allowed to take photos we can't say anything and and we found one of those uh, and in the last couple of hours on the very last day of the dig before it was closed down for the season wow so, so we'll find out in due course then perhaps what this, this secret object is. But yes. right now my lips are sealed. Okay, right. Well, anyway, well, to kick off bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're talking with Gillian Asquith about archaeology. So Gillian, our smaller questions to you are about archaeology movies. Now, do you have a favourite archaeology movie? Uh, my all? heart is sinking right now, Rob. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see how we go. We try to help our guests to pass. So there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, according to Box Office Mojo and adjusted for inflation, which of these classic archaeology movies is the highest grossing? Okay, is it A, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones movies? Is it B, Tomb Raider, featuring the archaeologist, Lara Croft? <laughs> or is it C, The Mummy, an archaeological dig in Egypt gone somewhat wrong? Or is it D, The Librarian of Three, the curse of the Judas Chalice, a lesser-known film with archaeologists. Uh, I'm going to go for one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's a good one to go with because that's the right answer. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> so, Gillian, do you think that these movies accurately represent what life of an archaeologist is like? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, not right. at all. Um, um, 
You don't show these movies to your students to sort of explain what, you know, what you do in an archaeological dig? Um, the, in those movies, it generally wasn't the archaeologists that got hot, sweaty and dirty. It was all the minions. When we go on digs, we are the minions. Right, OK. Um, right. Yeah. OK, you're doing well. Question two. The online news website Business Insider wrote an article, four things Hollywood gets wrong about archaeologists and two things it gets right. So which of these is one of the two things that they claim Hollywood actually gets right about archaeologists, okay? Is it A, archaeology is all about finding treasure? Is it B, it's all right if one or two artifacts gets destroyed over the course of your adventure? Is it C, archaeology only happens in faraway places? Or is it D, it's good to wear a hat if you work outside? <laughs> so which of those do they get right? Which thing Hollywood gets right about archaeology? Yeah, let's go for D. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Gillian, you've dug up treasure today. For you got two of our two smaller questions right. Okay, so perhaps Hollywood doesn't quite get the life of an archaeologist right. So what actually happens on a dig? Can you give us the scoop, so oh, to speak? I can give you all the dirt you want. Yeah, sure. So you get up ridiculously early, four o'clock in the morning. We're on the bus at 4.30, bleary-eyed, covered in sunscreen, ready to attract all that dirt yep. to, to stick to your nice, <laughs> greasy... Make sure um, you got your hat. Sunscreen. Got my hat, yep. Uh, so we load up the wheelbarrows while it's still dark, push them up to the dig site, and we start digging. And people think archaeology is all about small paintbrushes, gently um, brushing away bits of soil from fragile objects. Forget that. We're talking pickaxes. So uh, hard ground, lots of pickaxes, make a mess, get lots of soil loose, scoop it up into buckets, put it in a wheelbarrow, push this wheelbarrow that's full of rocks and dirt down a steep hill, tip it over a precipice, try not to go down the precipice with the wheelbarrow, wheel it back up to the top of the hill and start the whole thing again. Wow, so it sounds like it's hard work. You know <laughs> and it's great fun. Oh, you, you find that fun? Am, am I selling this? <laughs> <laughs> so then how do you know where to dig though? Um, so the archaeologists have a number of techniques. So the site that we were on, um, they didn't do anything particularly scientific to start with. They just walked around. And there was um, so much pottery from certain time periods laying on the surface, they thought, yep, this is a good place. Yeah. Other times they'll do um, ground-penetrating radar and other more scientific things. Okay. What sort of things then do you find? Um, in a dig? So y you'll always find pottery, and, and that's good stuff to find because it can help date uh, the layer that you're digging in. So um, pottery went through different phases of fashionable rims, believe it or not, fashionable rims and bases. And you have to call them bases, not bottoms, because, as I found out, if you, somebody digs up a base of a pot and you say, oh, that's a lovely big bottom you've got there, <laughs> it's not that great. It doesn't go down okay. very well. But the rims um, and, and bases have a particular shape according to the time period they were in. So the more of that kind of pottery you find, the better. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know what layer, um, what, what datable layer you're digging in. Uh, as I said before, stones. Um, so stones, stones in a row. Stones in a row. So you can find one stone, it's not particularly exciting. Two stones in a row, oh, this is starting to look promising. Three stones in a row, nature doesn't do three stones in a row. Mm. So you know that that is indicative of human activity. And walls tell us an awful lot. They tell us whether um, a site has been fortified. They tell us whether there are monumental buildings with great big thick walls or whether the place was occupied more by peasants, just with small buildings. Um, so even though we as lay people might think that you know, that precious gold object is the thing that everybody's going to get excited about, people get equally excited about stones and walls. Now, Gillian, you've claimed that you're, you're sort of in your happy place on a dig. What makes you happy about digging? 
um, you're with all of these people from all these different backgrounds. We've got this, this common purpose of trying to discover something that has been covered up for thousands of years. Mm, mm. Now, questions come through from our text line from our live audience. Have you ever had to solve a riddle to find artifacts? And, and in brackets, has this ever resulted in running away from a boulder or hiding in a fridge? <laughs> No, no. The reality is, uh, is is nowhere near as interesting as those <laughs> kinds of things. Now, we're here today to talk about archaeology disproving the Bible. So what then can archaeology prove or that, demonstrate? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. Um, and the truthful answer would be, actually, not a great deal. Prove or disprove either way. Yeah, yeah. So let me explain what I mean. Let's say that the biblical text tells us that a battle took place at a certain uh, location and archaeologists come along and they dig up small round stones that would have been used as slingshots, they dig up arrowheads. So what does that tell us? It tells us a battle took place at that point. Does it prove that that's the battle that was talked about in the Bible. No, it doesn't. It tells us about warfare, it tells us about the kinds of weapons that were used, but can we match it up 100% with that particular battle in the Bible? No. So we have to use the evidence we get from archaeology with caution. Even inscriptions. People presented information with a particular agenda. They did back then and we do now. So even an inscription has to be in interpreted uh, with caution. Mm -hmm. So, But some would say, say though that is archaeological evidence more objective than other forms of historical Evidence? That's another good question. And I think because uh, archaeology deals with, with tangible objects, there's a tendency to think, well, you know, stones don't lie. <laughs> Artifacts, um, they're, they're, they're real. They, 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 they speak They're, they're they tangible. Speak you themselves. can touch them. You yeah. can see them. They're, but yeah. they don't speak for themselves. They're mute objects. They don't say anything. Um, we actually have to put words in their mouths. And that is where subjectivity comes in. Um, we need to remember that uh, very few objects in the ancient world were actually hidden intentionally for people to come and find. The Dead Sea Scrolls would fall into that category because they were hidden with the intention of the owners coming back to them. But everything else, pretty much, it's just an accident of preservation. And not very much has been preserved. Mm. And then the stuff that has been preserved, not very much of it has actually been found. So we're dealing with a very small amount of data from a massive set of material culture that originally existed. What has been found actually needs to be interpreted. And if I took you on one of my digs and put you in the room where the lead archaeologists interpret their findings, you would hear them having arguments. Somebody would be saying, well, I think this is a bit of a pot from a worship object. And somebody else would say, no, that's not a worship object. That's just an everyday uh, vessel. And somebody would say, yeah, but it was found in this particular spot and there are other things that suggest this might be a, a, a temple area. And somebody else says, no, it's just an ordinary vessel. There's nothing to do with worship in this particular part of the city. And there are arguing to and fro. Mm. And of course, when we read in textbooks or newspaper articles that this, that or the other has been found that either proves the Bible or disproves the Bible, we're not party to these arguments that have gone on. And sometimes it's just the one who shouts the loudest who wins. <laughs> That's okay. Um, who has the most alfoil, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So then, but in the early 1990s, there were a number of scholars who emerged, who they were known as the minimalist school, who effectively claimed that modern archaeology couldn't corroborate 
the Bible and instead claimed that much of the Old Testament was a myth. So they claimed that there was actually minimal history contained in the Old Testament. So, for example, the kings recorded there, like King David and King Solomon, they didn't really exist. They were literary creations. Uh, and one of these minimalist scholars, Philip Davies, claimed that King David was about as historical as King Arthur. Part of the reason was that the name David had never been found in any ancient inscription outside of the Bible. So is there strength to the claims of these scholars who attack the historical credibility of the Old Testament on archaeological grounds? So these claims are, are based on an argument of silence, which would say if we haven't found something that corroborates uh, the Bible, then we're not going to believe what the Bible says. We will only take the Bible as a historical fact if we find something that's consistent with it. But if I take you back to my previous points about how little we've actually found mm. um, and how little actually has been preserved, an argument from silence is, is not uh, a, a good argument. It, it, it doesn't stand up under scrutiny. Uh, while ever people are still undertaking archaeology, something might just pop up unexpectedly. And something did pop up, though. As these minimalists were sort of formulating their arguments, something popped up at about the same time. Do you want to yeah. share what happened? Yeah, that's right. So um, an inscription was found. It was found in the, uh, northern Israel in a place called Tel Dan. And that inscription actually had the words House of David written on it. So for people who tried to say that David was not a historical figure, suddenly you've got an inscription that attributes a dynasty to his name. Mm. What does that mean then? Does well, that mean that it proves David existed? or, or? It, it, it means that there was a historical person called David who had um, descendants, who, who, who ruled, who, who had a dynasty. Right. So that's looking pretty consistent with the biblical narrative. So how did the minimalists react, people like Philip Davies, etc.? Well, they had to do some rapid backpedalling, but they were not to be deterred. Right. <laughs> so, so they changed their story somewhat. Yeah, okay, okay, so David was a historical figure. He existed, but he wasn't a king. He wasn't a king over a kingdom in the way that the Bible uh, describes it. Look, he was probably the chieftain of a, of a few small tribes. These tribes were maybe people running around with big sticks, kind of hitting each other. That, that was all. He was a fairly minimal figure, pardon the pun. So can archaeology say much more about King David then, or in, in reaction to that? Yeah, interestingly, uh, the archaeologist that I work for, uh, Professor Josef Garfinkel, um, has been doing research that speaks directly into that debate. So about 10 years ago, he started digging a site about an hour's drive away from Jerusalem called Kibbut Kayafa, and he found olive pits that went into little foil parcels so that they could be sent off for carbon dating. And the carbon dating uh, showed that uh, the layers of occupation at Kibbut Kayafa uh, were from the time of King David. Then as he dug further, he realized that there were features of this site that were consistent with a centralized monarchy. So he found uh, storage jars that had seals on them, and those seals had a, an, an imprint of, uh, they used various pictures of things, flowers or insects, and then a little inscription that said, to the king. That's an evidence, uh, evidence of taxation. So you fill your jars with uh, grain or oil or wine and you send them back to Jerusalem as your taxation. So we've got evidence of centralised bureaucracy, taxation. There were a number of structures found 
fortifications around the place, uh, monumental buildings that were built in the same kind of style as other places that had been definitively dated to the same time period. So we've got centralised town planning, if you like, to use contemporary terminology. Um, all evidence that there must have been some kind of centralised bureaucracy consistent with the idea of a kingdom. And another question's come in from our text line, from our live audience here. So why do we even need to prove or disprove the Bible? That's a good question too. We need to be able to give a defence for our faith that says it is historically accurate. This is not just some set of nice stories dreamed up by the early church to try and foster a belief in a mythical figure called Jesus. Our faith is historical. And if it is historical, then we would expect to see material remains, historical, tangible material remains that are consistent, notice the word that I'm using, consistent, not proving, consistent with the biblical narratives. Well, because it would seem that the, even the biblical authors would expect even someone like King David, perhaps, to be a real historical person. So in the book of Acts, um, the Apostle Peter stood up, gives a speech in Acts 2.29, where he says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. So he would seem to expect that if you were to do archaeological dig on that space, you'd actually find his bones. That's right. So right from the start of, um, of, of Christian preaching has been the idea that our faith is grounded in, in historical reality. Yes, yeah. So where is the tomb of David, though? Because that's been lost yeah, in a, some sense, isn't it? That, that's that's an, another argument. So there is a site in Jerusalem that you can go to that is uh, revered as the tomb of David. But that's most likely something that, uh, a site that was identified by crusaders and, and then venerated, but uh, incorrectly uh, located, <laughs> as is the case with, with a, a number of places um, uh, in, in Israel. So archaeologists would now suggest that there, that there needs to be another site further south in Jerusalem that could be excavated. Okay. So we've thought about, a bit about the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Is the archaeology of the New Testament different? It is slightly different. So by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, we're in the period of the Roman Empire. We have a lot more historical sources uh, that people are less likely to take issue with. So when it comes to the New Testament, um, the overriding benefit of archaeology is to help give us an insight into what the culture was like in the time of the New Testament. You know, we, we need to always remember that we're separated from the world of the Bible by time, language, and culture. Uh, and there are a number of things that we really have very little idea about until we start scratching in the soil, digging things up, and, and seeing what, what things were it really like. It makes things a bit more real. So is there any particular archaeological find that you find fascinating that connects to the New Testament story? Yeah, so there are a number. Um, so I'll start with one that, that I, I've personally encountered, uh, so one of the digs I went on was in northern Israel, in Bethsaida. So you may remember that from the Gospels, where Jesus uh, heals a blind man, and some of the apostles uh, had their home in Bethsaida. So we're digging away, and we keep finding bits of limestone pottery. Now, limestone was used by the Jews for ceremonial vessels, because limestone was thought not to transmit impurities. So in John chapter 2, when we read that uh, the water at the wedding was contained in six stone jars uh, for ceremonial washing, 
those stone jars would have been hacked out of a single piece of limestone. And, and when you uncover these, these pieces on a dig, you can see the marks where somebody has chiselled away to um, sculpt their limestone pot. Mm. There's also, for you, something that's really fascinating in the book of Revelation, in this, uh, the, the church of Laodicea, one of the, the messages that's given to the, the church there. Um, because it says in Revelation chapter 3, uh, there's a verse which says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So can archaeology help us with this yeah. sort of slightly obscure part of the New Testament? It can, and, uh, and it's fascinating. So when, uh, when it says you're neither hot nor cold, now in, in, um, in our cultural understanding of hot and cold, hot is good. You know, like I'm going on a hot date <laughs> or, you know, what's the latest hot topic? Um, hot is good and cold is bad. Oh, you know, you give somebody the cold shoulder or you've got cold feet about something. So I think our natural tendency with that verse would be to read it as saying, you're neither hot, you know, you're neither on fire for me, or you're neither cold, you know, you've neither rejected me outright, you're just kind of lukewarm. But archaeology tells us that that's actually the wrong interpretation. So uh, those words were written to the church at Laodicea. And Laodicea is a place in present-day Turkey. Uh, you can go and visit it, spectacular um, archaeological ruins there. Archaeologists have found that there's no natural water supply there for the Laodiceans, uh, but they've found pipes that meant that the Laodiceans piped their water supply in. And they piped their water supply in from a place where there were hot springs. Uh, these hot springs are full of minerals, they're soothing, they're just wonderful to go and, and paddle in. You can still go to them today. But of course, by the time you've piped your water across the valley, it's not going to be hot anymore, is it? It's going to be lukewarm. But equally, there was another water source. The Laodiceans didn't pipe their water in from that place, but it was nevertheless there as a source that they could go and carry water from. Um, there were some cold, refreshing springs uh, in Colossae. But if you go down to the uh, beautiful, cold, refreshing springs at Colossae and you carry a bucket of water back up the hill to Laodicea, what temperature is it going to be by the time you get it back? It's not going to be refreshing and cold, is it? It's going to be lukewarm. So... Both of those things, hot and cold, are good things to be. As a Christian, you can, you can be soothing and pouring God's comfort into people's lives, like those soothing hot waters um, across the valley. Or you can be refreshing and invigorating and empowering people to serve God by being like a refreshing spring. But actually, Jesus says, no. You're neither of those. You're just in the middle. You're vanilla, you're beige, you're lukewarm. Mm. It's the ultimate sermon illustration that connects 100% with the, with the people that it's directed towards. Right, yeah. So we've thought a bit about characters like King David, some of the colour and the realism of the New Testament, like limestone, um, pots and water from Laodicea, etc. But what about the heart of the Christian message, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Uh, for some, have used archaeology to cast doubt on the story of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. In fact, some sceptical scholars claim that as a result of archaeological finds, that it's claimed that it's unlikely that crucified people would be given a burial by friends or family. Hence, sceptical scholar John Dominic Crossan claims that Jesus' corpse was probably thrown into the common graveyard reserved for criminals and was probably eaten by dogs 
because victims of crucifixion would never have received an honourable burial. Mm. So how can, can archaeology help? It is unlikely that uh, people who'd been crucified would have been given any kind of a burial. So, so far, so good. So I suppose However, his, his argument is then, therefore, the biblical story is unlikely to be true because it's just not what commonly happened. That's right. But one bone has been found in a bone box uh, that has a, a nail through the heel bone. So that is the only remains we have of someone who has been crucified. But that is enough to say, look, just occasionally, somebody who had been crucified would have been given an honourable burial in the family tomb, um, laid out initially, so they practised what we call secondary burial, so the body was laid out first of all, then uh, when just the bones remained, they would have been gathered up and put into an ossuary, into a bone box, and that's where this particular bone was found. So it shows that the fact that Jesus was taken down from the cross and not just thrown into a common grave, as the biblical narratives tell us, he was placed in a tomb. It's within the realm of historical Plausibility, plausibility, yeah. yeah. So does that mean archaeology proves the biblical narrative about Jesus' crucifixion? No, not at all. But it shows that it was consistent uh, with practices at the time. Unusual practices, but nevertheless, possible practices. So to you then, has archaeology strengthened or weakened your view of the history contained in the biblical record? It has strengthened it for several reasons. One of the reasons that we, we actually haven't touched on so far is that um, archaeology can tell us that practices that were going on in the very ancient world that couldn't have been, or it's unlikely to have been known by writers five, six, seven hundred years later, show us that the biblical narratives that we have actually stem from those very ancient times, and they're not a product of somebody's imagination at, eight, at a later time. 800 at, years at later. A, at a time, yeah. yeah. Um, and when I see all of these um, small bits of evidence, each individually being consistent with the biblical narrative, that together, great confidence um, in the overall historical uh, veracity of, mm. of the Bible. So apart from creating some interesting sort of study tours and study trips, etc., and giving you opportunity to dig, what difference does this make to your life, understanding the archaeology in the Bible? So it brings it home to me that our faith is based on history, that God actually intervened in human history by sending Jesus, who became human, who interacted with real people in real places, he would have handled pots like the handles that I've dug up from a similar time period. It reinforces to me the tangibility of our faith. It, it's not just some nice stories based on myth. God became part of history. I am part of history. I am part of that continuous story of God's workings in the world. So, Gillian. Doesn't archaeology disprove the Bible? Archaeology shows that there are consistencies between the material record and the Bible that can give us great confidence. Let me leave you with some of the Bible, which is better illuminated by archaeology, from Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, I know your deeds that are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Look forward to you joining us next time. For bigger questions, please thank our guest today, Gillian Asquith.
Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.